John 
tells us in the words of Jesus has given to the Son those that are to be saved. I don't understand that. But Jesus said, all those who are given to me by my Father, I will not turn away. So the fact that you're in the kingdom is because the Father has chosen you to be given you to the Son. And what does the Son do? He, he dies upon the cross so that he might redeem us and take us to himself with the promise that then, having redeemed us, he will build his church. So the Father embraces us. The Son places us within this community and promises us the head of the church to build it. It is not your governance board. It is not your power. It's not your worship team. It's no one in here that's going to build the church as Christ will build the church. He is the one who is the architect. He is the chief cornerstone. But what's the role of the Holy Spirit? It is the Holy Spirit. I'm fascinated by Jesus' words when he said, it is good that I go away that he can come. How could it be good that Jesus go away? Everybody want to go to have Jesus still here on this earth? No, it's good that I go away that he comes. Who? The counselor, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And what part does he have to play in all of this? Remember the Spirit and the bride say come? He is the one who actually melts us together, not to become clones, in our individuality experience through our giftings, our histories, our stories, what it is to comprise the fabric of the body of Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the fascinating passages that I uh, find just wonderful is in Psalm 133, and you know these words, verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in are given. So the theme is unity, and the metaphors are, it's like dew on Mount Hermon, and it's like oil on Aaron's beard. And you that are students of the Bible know that those two commodities, oil and water, are symbols of the Holy Spirit. Um, oil was used at all the anointings, wasn't it? And water, Jesus said, if you believe in me, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. By this, he was referring to the Holy Spirit who had not yet come because he had not yet ascended. So here we have in this Old Testament passage this, this idea of unity with the presence of the Holy Spirit who is water and who is oil. Now, when you think of water and oil, do they mix? They don't mix at all. You better put oil and water together, they separate. They don't get along with each other. And that's kind of like us. You know, we left to us ourselves, but seriously, left to ourselves, our warts, our blemishes, our flaws, our issues, we would not get along. But when the Holy Spirit is active in a community, you know what happens? The Holy Spirit brings us together. He moves on our hearts. He melts our rough edges. He helps us to navigate through the obstacles. And He brings about the unity it's amazing. The last verse of that psalm is it is in that unity by the work of the Holy Spirit bringing together odd commodities that God commands a blessing. God commands a blessing. And if there's anything that this fellowship needs, it's the blessing of God. Isn't that true? Don't you want to live under the blessing and favor of God? And what does that require? It requires a sense of unity. Not uniformity. A sense of deep community and the Spirit of God is at work. And it's just a wonderful journey as people who would not normally know each other, get along with each other, are by the Spirit of God through the shed blood of Christ, through the wonderful embrace of the Father, are brought together in form community. That's the church. And I don't need to remind you that beyond these walls there is a culture that desperately needs the message that we have come to believe. Desperately That's the journey that you're on. And it's a tough journey sometimes. I mean, all that 
start functioning, when you start living, it's not easy. You ever noticed? I've been married 43 years, 44 years. How many years have I been married, sweetheart? 40 some odd years. We're married in 78. You do the arithmetic. To the same woman, by the way, I should mention that. That's important, too. Um, and, and so, I, you know, you go through seasons in marriage. Isn't it true? I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful in the courtship. It's awesome on the honeymoon. It's incredible in early years. And then you suddenly discover that there's issues. Am I alone in this? I feel very awkward right now. Uh, I need to go get on a couch and call Matt to help me. But anyway, uh, you know, there's bumps along the road. And the same thing is true in terms of us, the bride of Christ, married to the Lord Jesus, living within the community of the saints. So, my part matters. And they sent me an email and said, talk on freedom. And I thought, well, how's that going to relate to my part matters? I think Matt was just being generous to say, hey, do whatever you like. I think he was being kind. But as I began to think about it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Here's how it relates to my part matters. When my freedom clashes with your freedom, there is the stress point. Now, you know that with freedom, there's conflict. You know that, don't you? With freedom, there's hardship. I should not be as a Canadian telling you Americans that with freedom, it comes at a cost. I think you could talk to me about that. It's true personally, is it not? But I live out my freedom that God has granted me. I have discovered I can live decisions and I can live with bad decisions, right? I can do things very well and I can do things very, very bad. Why? Because I have freedom. This is not unusual. Romans 7, that incredible passage of Scripture, which I just quickly mentioned, is the Apostle Paul, when he looks at his life, here's the Apostle Paul looking at his own life and saying, why is it the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I don't want to do, I do? Where's the conflict? With freedom, challenge and difficulty because our best aspirations can lay sometimes in the dust of defeat and our highest, highest desires can go down into defeat. And how does he end that? He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me? The wretched man that I am. And then he goes on to say, but thanks be to God through Christ, there's this hope. But it doesn't negate the fact that with freedom, personally, it comes at a cost. It comes with conflict. Now, what is true personally is true in the corporate assembly. It is for freedom, Galatians 5.1, that we have been called in Christ for freedom. But with our freedoms individually, what happens when my freedom in Christ conflicts with your freedom in Christ and we're in conflict? That is a crucial issue of corporate vulnerability. Now, when we go to the scriptures, we discover that this is not something that is new. In Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 8, you don't have to turn, I'm just alluding to it. We know that right off the bat, out of the starting gate, the early church had conflicts because of personal freedom. And, and there's a reason why it's such a conflict, because in one of the solutions in Romans, I think it is 15, Paul says that pertaining to the freedoms that you have in Christ, when they're clashing with other people's freedom, he says this, let each of you be convinced in your own mind. There's the problem why freedom sometimes clash, is because of the very admission that we need to have a convinced sense
certainly probably not wrestled with, you know, meat offered to idols, nor do you have a problem with holy days. You kind of absorb the ones that you think are significant and generally is true in the community. But we're not living for a century. We're living 21st century. And so it's important for us to begin to sit down and think, okay, so what are the issues over which we die for? What are the non-negotiables of the kingdom? And then what are those issues? Dare a visitor come into a church and talk about the non-negotiables? It could be points of collision. What kind of lunacy is he thinking? Well, I get to get on a plane for it the home. So that's the kind of lunacy. But please don't misunderstand. I in no way want to create dissension or discombobulate a harmony that is already here. But I do think, because I've been pastoring for 44 years, that we need to have our eyes wide open, not wide shut, that obstacles will come when we're in collision with personal convictions and freedoms. They will come. And tragically, they divide the church. Now, what are the essentials? Well, you know the essentials, and I'm not here to go through them, but we understand we have a high view of Scripture. This is the inerrant Word of God. We understand the glory and beauty of the virgin birth, the sinless life of Christ, that He was crucified, was buried, rose again the third day, and is gloriously going to return. We believe that, true? We have an understanding of judgments, of the eternal nature of heaven and the reality of hell. These are the fundamentals, and they rarely divide a congregation. The things that divide a congregation are not the essentials. They may divide denominations. That's true. Incidentally, on this issue of conflicted freedoms, the Protestant church is a wonderful example of the problem. Do you know, at recent count, there are 30,000 denominations. 30,000. I come out of a brethren tradition, Plymouth Brethren, you probably explain. I went to a Baptist seminary and then pastored in a non-denominational church. Am I confused? I'm not confused. I think what is beautiful in each of those aspects, in some ways the church is a beautiful mosaic. I mean, it's the Baptist who sent out William Terry to India and said, we've got to reach the world. Father of modern mission. The Pentecostal said, yes, but you need it in the power of the Spirit. The Presbyterian said, but God is sovereign. And the salvation army said, but don't forget the people that are marginalized. But the church is a beautiful mosaic, and I truly believe we can see it that way. But also, I remember I remember a Baptist church in our community, the Baptist of Issues. Remember I said I was Baptist, right? I can say it. Um, they called themselves on the church sign, Fundamental Baptist. A little while later, they added, they tinted it over and said, Fundamental Particular Baptist. I have no idea what particular means. Then they overwrote that and they said, um, Sovereign Grace Fundamental Particular Baptist. And then they erased that. The sign got bigger and bigger and bigger as they became more and more exclusive. And we talked to them. I said, okay, right, that's what they needed. But what are the issues that affect local congregations? Well, as we look into the 21st century, I think there are several that we could look at, and I'm going to be very brief. I'm simply making a simple point, and then I'm going to share with you four or five principles. But here's my point, is that there are always going to be disagreements in the body of Christ. And we have to parse between the non-negotiables and the negotiables. Fifty years ago, when I was a kid, it was playing cards. Shopping on Sunday, alcohol, women wearing hats, remember I said Plymouth Brethren, attending church services. Sunday morning was the popularity of the preacher, Sunday night was the popularity of the people, but Wednesday night, that's where Jesus was popular. And you look and you measure people's spirituality by which service they attended. If they went to Wednesday night, those were the true followers of Jesus. It's amazing how we put a litmus test on whether we're going to have community with somebody and whether we're going to stamp them with approval as being spiritual or not. We have a little list that we in our minds and are prepared to stamp people with. You know, we speak about a litmus test of fellowship. We have the right translation of the Bible. Oh, that was a big one, wasn't it? You know, you know James Dobson. Remember James Dobson and Focus on the Family back in the day when he was a part of it? I'll never forget one broadcast I heard him say, 
went straight into all the topics. The number one subject that got the outpouring of angry letters was when they had the topic worship. Worship. Now, isn't that interesting? Doesn't that tell us something about how it is that we navigate through obstacles of the differences of opinion? Now, what are the issues of today? Well, I'm not wanting to get anybody in trouble, but I just scribbled down a few, but I'm just cherry picking. They're not necessarily my issues nor yours, but I'm trying to awaken us to what could be the issues that we're facing. Uh, tattoos, baseball caps in the sanctuary, political affiliation, oh, don't go there, Brian, COVID, vaccinations, issues of authority. Expenditures of money. Still today, worship styles. All of these, and you can add to your list, are going to be thorny issues on the pathway of what it means to follow Jesus. And whether it's any of these or a new set, I can guarantee, just like 50 years ago, just like today, should Jesus carry 50 years from now, generations will still have issues that can divide the body. Kind of diet. And he 
and said there has to be these disagreements. Why? Because those who are approved will become evident. As God raises up leadership in the community, and how do they raise up leadership? I want to suggest you four or five points as to what it means to navigate a congregation through these obstacles, through these landmines, so that a congregation does not fracture, but it flourishes. Underscore, and there's no self-serving here, though I be a pastor. It is leadership that has the mantle of decision and authority. And this is the challenge because we live in a world that says, Don't tell me what to do. Don't instruct me how to live. I get to live within my freedom. And it's true that you have a freedom in Christ, and I have a freedom in Christ. But as you follow through the conflicts of the early church, leadership played a Responsibility to helping the congregation navigate through. And by the way, it wasn't a cakewalk. It involved division, it involved fractured of relationships, but nonetheless, that leadership was approved and it became evident that they were God's people to lead the congregation in such a time as that. Pray for your leadership. I don't even know who they are. I just I know some of them. But I don't know the structure here. Pray for your leadership. They have a mantle of responsibility.
says, all right, go, go get them. And so he goes off and he shows up in the battle and he, he's looking, he's listening, he sees this giant taunting the Israelites and the Israelites cowering for fear. And David gets into a conversation. What's going on here? And they said, well, haven't you heard Goliath taking us out? We're running scared. And David says, happen an uncircumcised, non-covenant person with the eternal God scare the people of God. It's ridiculous. Here he is as a little kid, and he's speaking with boldness with faith. And when he speaks, now this is the point, Eliab, his oldest brother, sibling rivalry, sees David speaking with such boldness, and he takes David apart. You're conceited, you're just trying to cause trouble, you're nothing but a shepherd. There's issues there, are there not on the part of Eliab? He just lacerates into David. And here's what it says in 1 Samuel 17. And David turned aside from Eliab and continued to say, Why are you afraid of the uncircumcised? Read it in 1 Samuel 17. He turned aside. He wouldn't take the bait of provocation to get into the fight. If he had, it would have distracted from what were the issues at hand. And you know what? When you get in discussions with people that have nefarious purposes, it's amazing how it can do something to your own soul. It can wither you. It can demoralize you. It can weaken you. And so it says, David turned aside from Eliab. If we're going to function with the inevitability of possible disagreements, we need to learn how not to take the bait of distraction. I can show you this in Nebuchadnezzar and life. I can show it to you in Nehemiah when he was building the wall. There are all kinds of stories. I don't have time. All kinds of stories where people are taunted to lose sight of what they're to be about and to get involved in the skirmish. And uh, you know, people that want to cause trouble can quickly say, well, see, they don't care. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want the issue. But let me tell you again, something about the spirit and leadership that says, that is not an issue for them. Not here, not now, not with me. Now, I want to be quick to say, as Paul says, and I'm sorry that it's in the masculine, your translations, I'm sure, have changed beautifully, but he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on your guard, stand firm in your faith, For that, I'm just going to look in my own Bible to the book of Judges. You don't need to turn to it, but I just want to get it correct. How do we de-escalate a volatile situation? There's an interesting story in the story of Gideon. Remember Gideon had 10,000 soldiers ready to take out the Midianites, and God says, you've got too many. What news is that? That's a scary moment when God says, you've got too much strength. I want to weaken you for the battle. How much do you want to weaken me for the battle? Gideon says to God. How about 9,700? Go home. I only want you to have 300. 
Well, Gideon takes the 300, and they do battle with the Midianites. And in Judges chapter 8, just take my word for it, I'll give you the verse in a second, the Ephraimites, one of the tribes, gets their nose out of joint. You know why they get their nose out of joint? Because they like battle, they like fights, they like conquering and contest. And so they go to Gideon and say, it's not fair. We are part of the 10,000 and we wanted to fight and we're men of wars and, and you wouldn't take us with you. It's not fair. Now, Gideon had God's word. Only 300. And these are the 300, not the Ephraimites. How would Gideon handle this insurrection within the community when their battle and their enemy was out there? You know how dangerous it is when that enemy becomes the enemy that is within the camp? Now we've got a problem. And Gideon is so incredibly smart. He looks at these Ephraimites whose noses are out of joint because they didn't get to be chosen to go to war because those are strong men and real men go to war and they win battles. He then says to them, what have I accomplished compared to you men? What have I been able to do in comparison to you? Now think of those two statements. What have I accomplished that you've not been able to do? What have I done that you've not done better? What's Gideon doing? He is de-escalating the situation because the very next line says, at this, their resentment against Gideon resided. Now, I struggle with that story because I ask myself, well, is he flattering them? I mean, is he, you know, sucking up to them? Is that what he's doing? No, he, he has understood what it means to de-escalate volatile situations, to understand how words can be used powerfully to bring people to a place of what we might call homeostasis in psychological terms, to a place of peace. If leadership needs to know how not to take the bait of distraction, leadership and the people of God, all of us collectively, need to learn how to use our words to bring healing and peace and restraint. Because once a word is let go, the damage can be untold. All through the scriptures, you know, we're told about the power of speech. Set a guard over my mouth. Ryan read a lot of these verses last week. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I've read already Proverbs 18.21. The tongue has more power because life and death reside in it. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. They don't take the bait. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You know, when you're facing that conflict, and they've said something that's going after a raw edge, a nerve ending in your life, that's the time you breathe a quick prayer and say, Spirit of God, help me to see what's going on here. Help me to find in you a soft answer to turn away wrath. Because in moments of non-essentials, in crises of division, we need to learn how to handle our tongues. Once the word is let loose, it's gone. And may I say this in a 21st century application, emails rarely solve conflict. Emails start conflicts. <laughs> Send. But they rarely solve conflicts. So don't take the bait. Learn how to de-escalate. Now, I want to say one quick thing, really fast. For those of you that are as old as I am, I'm 66. And um, that obviously didn't surprise anybody here. Thanks a lot. Um, it is important for those of us that are seniors that we understand spiritual maturity is demonstrated in mellowing in mellowing. Now, I say this as a moment of just honest conversation. I know what it's like as a pastor, as now a senior, to sit in the seat of a scoffer and to complain and to criticize and to spot faults. It's very easy to slide into that frame of mind. I have pastors this, this grieves my heart. I, I have pastors that when they retire from ministry, don't go to church anywhere. You know why? Ministry has poisoned them. And there's a 
curmudgeon spirit within them, and nothing pleases them. And they sit on the fringes and on the outside of the body of Christ, which is tragic because you know what Paul says? The young need the old, the old need the young. We're all in this together. As we mature, spiritual maturity is mellowing. What does mellowing mean? It means the edges are softened. The positions that are on principle and just persuasion are kept sometimes to ourselves. You say, how do we know that's true, Brian? Can I suggest you, look at the life and testimony of the Apostle Paul. You watch as he gets older how he mellows. You know, in his early years, as an apostle, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am the least of all the apostles. I'm an apostle, but I'm the least of all. I wasn't there with those twelve. But I am something still, but I'm the least of my apostles. Then in Ephesians, later in his life, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. And then as he's close to dying, what does he say? Second Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. That's mellowing. When you begin to realize the closer you get to heaven, the closer you get to Jesus, there is still a lot of work to be done on this old 66-year-old follower of Christ. Don't take the bait. Learn how to de-escalate. Watch over your heart. Guard your heart, as Proverbs says, because out of it flow the issues and the issues of contention of life. And then number next, I would suggest every issue has emotion and the issue at stake. Every issue has the emotion, the color commentary, and the issue at stake. And so if we're not going to take the bait, if we're going to be careful in how it is that we recognize that we can de-escalate this and we need to mellow as we spiritually mature, I need to also become good at, in the midst of this situation, what is the issue and what else is going on here? Because we all bring our woundings into relationship. We all bring our stories into relationships. We've all got our warts and our flaws. We all have our memories. All of that comes to play. And while I want to talk about this, you know what we discover so often? There is a root down here that is actually being tampered with. It's being touched at the raw space of deep hurt. And so as we walk into situations, we need to ask, well, what is the issue and what else is going on here? I remember Matt telling a story, being really quick here, but I remember Matt, to illustrate this point, he was telling it for some other purpose, there were three groups of people asked a simple question that you all know the question and have an answer to. The three groups were African believers, the West and believers in North America, and then Messianic believers, Jewish, who had come to Christ. Those were the three groups. The question was this, the prodigal son, why did the son return home? Okay, that was the question. The Africans said because there was a famine in the land. The Jewish believers said because he was dining with pigs. And believers in North America said he ran out of money. Now, you get the point? All three of those are in the story, but what is being said is colored by the personal experiences of those that read the text. We all have our perspectives. And so when we're coming into the midst of conflict, very quickly we need to separate what is the issue and what else is going on here. And how do I help us navigate through? And sometimes we have to just stop and pause and immediately respond to what is actually going on here before we get to the issue. You take Acts chapter 6, the story of the widows that were being overlooked for the daily necessities of food. And they were upset. They were concerned that they were being marginalized. Here was a new body of people that was Jew and Gentile. People from different parts of the community were coming together, forming a new group. And so one group, these widows were feeling they weren't getting the treatment that those young people were getting, those young adults were getting, those mid-adults were getting. Hey, nobody's paying attention to us. And the leadership was very careful to say, okay, we have a problem here. And so let's look at the issue. Let's look how that might affect those that are feeling deeply the issue. You know what it's like to be marginalized and forgotten and neglected? 
And then thirdly, and I love this, let's see who needs to respond to the problem. And it wasn't them. This is crucial for leadership. Not every issue needs a leadership solution. Here's the problem. They're being neglected. Here's the solution. Choose from among you those that can take care of this so that we can continue to do what we've been called to do. By the way, the end of that story, you know what it says? From that point forward, those that were entrusted with the proclaiming of the word continued to devote themselves to prayer and the word. Here's the end of that story. And many priests began to follow Jesus. Think of that. Those Jewish priests that crucified Christ that were grabbing their garments and were so angry about the kingdom, they were now coming to Christ. Why? Because those in leadership saw a problem, addressed the problem, solved the problem, but not themselves being the solution so that everybody could be taken care of and the Word of God could continue to go forward. So every issue needs to be parsed. What's going on here? What are the feelings associated? What's the color commentary? And how do we best address the issue? And then lastly, and I'm done. If we don't get our way, get over it. I mean, that sounds so basic, but isn't it true? If we don't get our way, get over it. And if I have time, and I don't have time, but I would draw your attention to that incredible story, and there's so many about the divisions in the church. You can go into the book of Acts over theology. But I draw attention to the one of relationship. Where Paul the Apostle and Barnabas have been doing missionary work. And the gospel has been going forward and it's been awesome. And Barnabas and Paul had a very special relationship. You know, when Paul was saved by the road to Damascus, people were not quite sure that he was actually following Jesus, so they didn't want him. And it was Barnabas who stood up and said, Hey, Paul, he gets to be included. I believe there's an authenticity in terms of his conversion. Welcome him into the fellowship. And it was Barnabas who stood up for Paul. And so they become good friends and they go on missionary trips. But they took with them one individual whose name was John Mark. And John Mark was actually Barnabas' cousin. And in one of those journeys, I don't say this disrespectfully, but the powers of hell broke loose. The demonic was chasing down the proclamation of the gospel. And we read in Acts 13 that John Mark got petrified and he left and went home. Fast forward the story. They come back to Jerusalem. They report the good things that God has done and now they're going to do their second journey. And Paul and Barnabas say, who's coming with us? And guess what? Barnabas says, let's take John Mark. And what does Paul say? Over my dead body over my dead body. Interestingly enough, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Acts, you talk about color commentary. In the account, he simply says, John Mark went home. But when he describes the conversation in the congregation and the friction between Barnabas and Paul, he actually sides with Paul and says, John Mark deserted them. He deserted them. All that to be said, a sharp dispute happened between Barnabas and Paul. And it's a sad story because these beautiful friends who had shared in the gospel ministry, suddenly that sharp dispute severed that relationship and off they went. Well, what's the end of the story? We could look for good principles out of all of that, but one of the things that strikes me as we conclude this morning is that when Paul is nearing his hour of leaving this earth, and he reflects over all the years of his life, and he was not perfect, I remind you of that. He remembers that incident when he pushed John Mark off to the side, and he says, bring John Mark. Please bring John Mark. He's useful to me. And somehow, navigating through all the pain and process of all that had gone on, Paul had a sense that there needed to be some repair in that relationship. So as you go on this journey, and you will experience inevitably some conflicts within your freedoms, hold these principles close. But more importantly, hold Jesus close. And He will navigate you through them. His Holy Spirit will keep you in the bond of love. And he will strengthen you to the call 
that he's put upon these two expressions of one church so that you can live out your story to the glory of God. Lord Jesus, we sit here in the peacefulness of these moments. But Lord, each one of us knows times when we have been at odds with those of your children that we have found disagreement with. If there's something in our hearts, Lord, that needs attending to even right now, I pray that as we come to the table and think about the forgiveness that you have offered us, we might in turn pour out forgiveness and love upon those situations and individuals that need repair. But I do pray, Lord, that in the days to come, as this wonderful adventure has been ordained of you to bring these congregations together as one, I pray that you will aid them in navigating through what the enemy wants to do, which is to divide and conquer. That won't happen, Lord, because you are our God. You are the one who's the sweet agreement between us. And so we yield ourselves and all that is before us to you. Come, Holy Spirit, as we continue in worship and receive the bread and receive the cup. In these moments of deep reflection of how offensive we've been to you, and we have received your mercy and grace, may we not only engage in deepening worship, but also in the resolve to keep the body of Christ together. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name.